The Lord of Hosts, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what God, at what had happened to him. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father God, we rejoice in your word. And it is our desire to uh, gain that fear of the Lord which causes us to tremble at your word. Help us, Father, to uh, implement the things that are given here. Give us wisdom. Work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully bring the word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Well, the whole nation has just been riveted with the video footage that's been coming out of New Orleans, and uh, the tragedy of the uh, storm was bad enough, but then when you add insult to injury with all of the looting and the shootings that have been going on and people setting buildings on fire through arson, uh, just an incredible uh, thing. And I'm always fascinated to see the responses of people in these kinds of situations, uh, some people respond like the priest did in the next chapter. Some people like this beggar. Uh, there was one man and his son had been rescued in a boat, and he was uh, saying how much he thanked God for his mercy. And it was almost as if the people who had rescued him were kind of irritated, and they asked right on the camera there, you thanking God or are you thanking these people who saved you? And he says, I thank God. I thank God for sending you, and I thank you for responding. And I thought that was a good uh, answer. But there were others who were treating the state as being God and were cursing their God for letting them down. Uh, one man said, we have put all our hope and trust in the government to save us and they have let us down. And I think it's precisely in the times when people's idols fail them that Christians need to be there to say not only that God is Lord of the storm, but he is the one who sends his people with compassion. Uh, and uh, to a uh, minister that he not only uh, guarantees that the severity of God as well as the goodness of God uh, have his purposes, but many times that those things lead uh, people to salvation. And in these first uh, few chapters of Acts that we're going to be going through, uh, we see that the apostles imitate the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in ministering to the whole man, not just to the spirit. Uh, if you look in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus didn't just teach. Uh, he also uh, healed the sick, uh, he um, fed people, he clothed uh, the person who, remember, was out there naked and they found him clothed and in his right mind. Um, he uh, uh, provided a practical context in which the gospel made sense. 
And this is one of the reasons why I'm very, very thankful. Our denomination for years now has had a disaster relief team to instantly be able to go into uh, these uh, situations and uh, provide some relief. We have three churches, as uh, Pastor Durham mentioned, right in that area that have been uh, affected. And there's many other churches all along the coastline. Uh, that have in one way or another been affected as well. We praise the Lord that Scott's uh, relatives, every one of his relatives' houses has been spared. So praise the Lord for that. But there are a lot of people who have uh, been hurt, uh, the innocent, right along with uh, those who, (laughs) you know, deserve God's judgment. We all deserve God's judgment, don't we? Uh, But... um, Uh, Vision Forum has taken uh, a convoy of trucks into uh, the area. Uh, They they had helicopters that were hired long ago to bring stuff in. The government refused to allow them to fly stuff in. But uh, there are various ministries, Curtis Crenshaw and and others who are uh, poised to make a difference. This offering is going to M&A, but uh, if you desire to help out, there is um, one family, um, trying to remember the name, Osborne, Michael Osborne, uh, was uh, murdered just this uh, past week. I found out about it, um, what, a couple of days ago. And he's left behind a wife and uh, six daughters. I mean, there's just random shootings. It's just strange stuff that's going on there. And uh, this was a very close friend of Curtis Crenshaw, of uh, Franklin Sanders, uh, Vision Forum as well. Uh, I had a very close friendship with him. And if any of you desire to give, uh, you know, beyond this offering that's been collected today to uh, them, I've got the address of where you can send uh, some finances. But uh, there's a lot of hurting people uh, out there. And both James and 1 John tell us there is something wrong about our Christianity if we see brothers and sisters in need and our heart of compassion is not moved towards them. I mean, it's, it's a good thing to have teaching and prayer is good and saying be warmed and be filled is good so long as you accompany it with action, right? And uh, if there are some who desire to uh, contribute and have not already done so, like I say, you can let us know or drop something into the uh, offering plate in the back. Now, today's passage is not about a huge disaster like happened in, as Scott says, New, New Orleans instead of uh, New Orleans. But um, uh, if you put yourself into the shoes of this man, of his parents, of his relatives, uh, of his friends, I think there's a lot of parallels uh, that go on, not only in the responses of the people, but the purposes of God. You see the same balance between not only teaching, but also uh, bringing, uh, uniting that with works, or as Titus 2 says, beautifying or adorning the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's uh, go through this passage, beginning at verse 1, Acts 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, the ninth hour on Jewish reckoning was three o'clock in the afternoon. It was also the time when the sacrifice was being made. And this has led some people to think that uh, John and Peter were going up there to offer animal sacrifices for their sins. I I don't think so. (laughs) The fact that they did not bring any money with them to purchase any of the sacrifices shows to me that that is not the case. If you look at verse 6, it says there, silver and gold I do not have. They didn't bring anything with them as normally people would to purchase priest-approved sacrifices. And John Calvin points out, once Jesus, the final sacrifice had died, 
to continue to sacrifice animals would imply that the Messiah hasn't come, right? It would be a blasphemy to continue to do sacrifices. And so the question comes, if they didn't go there to make sacrifices, why did they go? There are three uh, reasons why people continued to go into the temple during those years. I'll only give you one. That's the main purpose. But none of the reasons have anything to do with sacrifices. If you look at verse 12, you'll see that he begins to preach. If you look at chapter 4, 17 through 18, they insist that God has called them to preach in the temple. Uh, if you look at God's message through the angel in chapter 5 and verse 20, uh, the angel says, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so this was a God-given purpose to preach continually in this uh, temple. Verse 21, when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Chapter 5, verse 25, so one came and told them, saying, look, the men wh whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and pre teaching the people. And in terms of our chapter, what better time to go to the temple the right before and after the prayer meeting when there's hundreds of thousands of people who have gathered for prayer? There's no compromise here. They're just being strategic and trying to be effective in the way in which they do their outreach. And we need to take their, our, our cue from them, right? We need to be thinking through what are the most effective ways that we can uh, minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the... Uh, uh, next verse there, verse 2 says, And a certain lame man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried. And here is a tragedy that no doubt consumed the time and the resources of a family, some unnamed uh, family. It mentions he was lame from birth. And the reason for that, I think, was to show how amazing this miracle was. He had never learned to, uh, to walk as a baby. And so... He not only had to have a miracle happen to heal him, there was a miracle that had to occur in order for him to be able to leap and to walk. This was instantaneously uh, given to him. And he was also an adult. The word man, aner, means a grown adult. And if you flip over to chapter 4, verse 22, it says, For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So here was a person who had a tragedy that seemed like it would never go away. Now, why it is that God allows personal tragedies like Brian, you know, to go on and on and on without any relief, we don't know. Or why a person is caused by God to be born blind or why God allows people to suffer like he does in New Orleans, we don't know. But we do know God has a purpose and his purpose in this man's life was to bring great glory to God. In fact, it was far greater glory that was going to be brought to the Lord than if he had been kept well during those 40 years. Far greater glory. And I think just the fact that we know he's got a purpose, and it's a good purpose, ought to be an encouragement to us when we go through uh, similar uh, difficulties. The next part of the verse shows the biblical balance between helping those in tragic circumstances and helping them to have some responsibility, maybe sometimes even forcing them to have some self-responsibility so that there can be a degree of self-respect. It says, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask for alms from those who entered the temple. Now, money frequently is needed 
during times of tragedy, but I want you to notice three things about the giving of the money that helps to inform us as well. First of all, the apostles did not give money to every beggar that came along. And we know that by deducing from a few facts here. In verse 6, we've already seen they didn't bring any money with them. Silver and gold I do not have, but we know from chapter 2 they did have money in the church coffers. And it was money that they could have brought with them if they wanted to, especially since it was designated for mercy ministries, but they did not bring it. And we know from later chapters there continued to be beggars all around the temple area. So simple deduction would say that the apostles did not feel it obligatory to give money to every beggar uh, that came along and that, uh, that asked. Uh, growing up in Ethiopia, you would give money to some or give food to some, but you couldn't possibly give to everyone. Uh, when I was in China, it was the same, uh, same way, just thousands of beggars. You give to one person, and, you know, within three seconds, you're surrounded with 20 beggars, you know, who also need some, some money. They're everywhere. And so the first point that I wanted to make is that he didn't feel obligated to give to everyone. There was the Lord's leading in, in what was given. The second thing to notice is that this man had been laid daily at this temple for umpteen years and Jesus had not yet healed him. And I think that's a significant thing. Jesus has only been gone for a few days. He ascended on the 40th day. Pentecost occurs on the 50th day. And if this isn't the next day after that, it's very shortly after. And yet Jesus has not healed him. It's uh, over and over again. Jesus went into the temple. In fact, Scripture indicates he healed lame people in the temple. Let me read you an example. Matthew 21, 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. It's hard for me to believe that all of the times that Jesus went into the temple, he would not have seen this person who had been prominently sitting in that temple by that beautiful gate and yet not uh, and yet, uh, you know, totally have missed him. And why did he do this? Uh, we don't maybe all know all the reasons, but I think we can say at least this. It was not God's timing. Can we not say that, that it was not God's timing? God wanted this man healed, not under Jesus' ministry, but under the apostles' ministry because there was going to be a purpose in the advancement of the gospel uh, later on. And I, I think this can help to inform us when we become discouraged, we pray for Brian's healing, we pray for other people's healing, and we pray and we pray and we pray and we weep and the Lord does not do anything. We ought not to assume that God does not love us. Just as we ought not to assume that God did, uh, Jesus did not love that beggar because he did not heal the beggar. No, he knew full well that this beggar was going to be healed, but there was a perfect timing in God's purposes, and we need to have that trust as well. The third thing I want you to notice is that this man was not a believer yet. Those inside the church were provided for. I don't think there should ever be a time when believers... Uh, at least who are not under discipline, who are walking with the Lord, believers should ever be beggars. They were provided for by the church. Now, we saw last week that there were nine principles in the last chapter that distinguish this free market, biblical kind of charity from the socialistic way of giving charity, but they were provided for. Now, even among the Jews who were not yet Christians, there was a biblical consensus as to how charity ought to work. And you see hints of that uh, in this passage. This uh, verse indicates that there was family help, 
He was carried daily to the spot. There was some help from other people who were giving alms. But people didn't go to this man's house to help him out. He had to show initiative in getting out and doing something as well. Likewise, the family was the first line of defense, not the government. And so the relatives, no doubt, brought him by bringing him back and forth to the home uh, where he was staying at. But the lame man was responsible to have an eight to five job as well. That he was doing something. And so the text says he was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. He couldn't walk, but he could raise his voice to help raise some finances. Now, let me just describe a little bit of what went on in, in uh, Old Testament charity. Those who were able were required to glean. And gleaning was hard, back-breaking work. Um, if you were an able-bodied person, you couldn't just stand at the temple with a sign and says, any little bit will help. You wouldn't get any money from the pastor's buyers because they knew that the principle of a man work not, neither shall he eat, you know, continued to function. And so people had to have some kind of responsibility. And if you could not glean or help those who were gleaning, you know, from the home, and you could not... Um, um, sell yourself as an indentured servant or sell yourself out as a daily, um, uh, you know, what are they called, day, day laborers, then there were some other provisions that were, that were made, but it was only the people who could not do anything that you found as beggars. The rest just, they did not have sympathy on them if they were not willing to work. Um, even a paralytic, after he was healed, Jesus immediately expected, now you're going to be able to do something. Remember in the Gospels, he healed the paralytic and he said, pick up your bed and walk. Now, there had been other people who had been carrying his bed for years, but he says, now it's your turn. I think the principle is to the degree that you have ability, you must take on responsibility. To the degree you have ability, you need to take on responsibility. If a man work not, neither shall he eat, does not apply to an infant. Why? Because an infant does not have ability. But it does apply to a lazy four-year-old, you know, who doesn't want to work and keeps procrastinating on their chores. And so to say to that four-year-old, look, son, you have procrastinated all day and you're not going to get any supper until that chore is done. And if you don't get a meal till tomorrow, it's tough. You're not going to eat unless you work. That's a perfectly biblical principle to try to shake that child out of his lazy behavior. Now, what about a paralytic? Well, Scripture would indicate, you know, there's not a lot a paralytic can do. Um, but even after the healing, there was always something that was given to give them an indication you need to have now some self-respect. One of the ministries that we may start in the near future is a nursing home ministry uh, where we'll try to help people who are lying in bed and feeling that they're absolutely worthless. They have no significance to say that's not the case at all. You can have a significant part in the ministry of Dominion Covenant Church and Dominion Institute through prayer. And we're going to have a, a network of people who will minister uh, to you, bring the prayer requests and encourage their hearts that they are ministering right with us as co-laborers. Throughout the book of Acts, you see the apostles seeking people, seeking to help people help themselves rather than doing the work for them. You see that even of the paralytic who was healed in Acts chapter 9. There was a man totally paralyzed. He was bedridden for eight years. And it records, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. 
Now, others had made that bed for years for him. But in effect, he was saying, look, that's got to change. Right off the bat, I want you now to be taking the actions that you're able to do, right? So, in contrast to that, you see a lot of government welfare that takes away initiative and encourages irresponsibility. Look at verse 3. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Now, what an amazing contrast here. Here is a Jew, but he's outside of the temple looking in. Yes, the gate was beautiful. Yes, the temple was gorgeous. But it had done nothing for this beggar, spiritually or physically. Uh, It had a beautiful outward exterior, but it lacked the power that God had given to this remnant of Israel. And it was not until the power of the Lord Jesus Christ laid hold of this beggar that he was able to go into the temple and minister. Now, there were other... um, Beggars, and there are other lame people who went into the temple. For some reason, until this time, he did not. Verse 4, And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. Now, one side note I probably should have mentioned earlier is that Pentecost brought Peter and John close-knit together in their ministry. And you might say, well, so they were always ministering together in one sense, weren't they? But if you read biographies of these guys, uh, you'll find that Andrew and Peter had natural affinities. James and John had natural affinities, but John and Peter drove each other crazy. They were so different in the way in which they uh, they reacted. Peter was outgoing. John was reserved. Peter was very impulsive. John was very meditative. In fact, he analyzed. He he would he would think years in the future. Uh, Peter wanting instant action. Uh, John very deliberative. But in the spirit, these two teamed up as two sides of one equation that needed each other. And I think it's a beautiful example of body life. Different people needing each other within the body of Christ. So even though Peter's talking here, they were together. Now, why did they fix their eyes on this beggar? And why did they ask the beggar to look at them? I think in part, it was to help to personalize this situation. When you have been beaten into the ground in the kind of poverty that uh, these people uh, many times had, had experienced, many times everything in life began to look depersonalized. And even the crowds of people that went in front of you were just a blur, you know. You're looking for a handout. That's all you're looking for. And people are lost in the crowds. Um, when I was in China, uh, you see so many thousands of these beggars. After a while, you just tend to let your eyes glaze over. Well, not entirely, because some of these guys were really aggressive. They try to grab you by the arm, you know, and you learn to dodge, sidestep real quick. But in the sea of people at a feast like Pentecost, you didn't tend to see individuals. You tended to see crowds. And Peter and John did not want that to happen. They fixed their eyes on the beggar to let this beggar know they're interested in him, not just salving their own conscience. And they want him to fix his eyes on them because they want him to see they're going to immediately direct his attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now, how his hopes must have been dashed when Peter says, silver and gold I do not have. 
He'd heard that a million times. Yeah, right. <laughs> Very convenient. You don't have any gold. Um, but before he could think about that too much and wonder why he's asking for him to pay attention to them, he goes on to say, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, there are three things I want you to notice about uh, that verse there. And the first is that this corrects a popular misconception that you'll find in the faith healing movement. And that is that if you're not healed in a faith healing, uh, what, what do they call those things, Glenn? Uh, yeah, wherever they have those big meetings and everybody's supposed to get healed. If you don't get healed, it's your fault. You don't have any faith. Okay? Well, this guy had zero faith. And he was healed, right? Had zero faith. The faith was really of, um, of the apostles. And uh, he didn't have any idea he was even going to be healed. He didn't have any expectation. He was clueless as to what the apostles were planning to do. And yet God healed him. Now, on the other hand, I've seen some people make this a paradigm and they go to the opposite extreme. And Acts 14, verse 9, corrects the other extreme, which says, oh, no, the people don't need to have any faith. It's only the faith of the apostles that mattered. And there it said about Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And my point is we can't just pigeonhole God's sovereign acts into a neat little formula that if you do this, this is automatically going to happen. God is sovereign. Now, lest we think those are the only two paradigms, God gives us uh, several scriptures where there wasn't any faith whatsoever that was present. God just out of the blue does a miracle. Let me give you one example. In 2 Kings 13, 21, it says, So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Wasn't any faith present whatsoever. And God did the miracle. OK, so my point is, let's not be dogmatic on either side. Let's let God be sovereign and let's be humble. And I think I, I think we can have an encouragement. God delights in blessing his people, but we cannot demand it. He does it in his own good ways. Now, the second thing to notice is that Peter takes this man's attention off of himself and puts it on the Lord Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He does not want this man thinking that Peter is the source of uh, this power. He directs his attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's so important that we do the same in our ministry, whether it's mercy ministries, it doesn't matter what it is, that we let people know that... It's the Lord Jesus Christ that's been working all this through us. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. Yes, glorify the Father, right, who is in heaven. Uh, he's not denying that they are your good works, nor is he denying that other people are going to recognize that they're your good works. But he's saying your whole life should be so characterized by the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's obvious to people that you know that it's God who's motivated you to do this. It's God's grace, his power, his love that shed abroad in your heart that's enabling you uh, to be involved in this ministry. The third thing to notice is that Peter once again uses the title of despisement for Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. So he is the one that prophecy has said will come. 
but he's from Nazareth. Now, I, I, he used that in chapter 2, and when we were preaching on chapter 2, I mentioned that even Nathaniel, righteous Nathaniel, of whom Christ explicitly said there was no deceit or exaggeration in his mouth. Remember, Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, to be Jesus of Nazareth is a low, low term. And when he was called a Nazarene, and to this day the Talmud continues to refer him to as a Nazarene, when he's called a Nazarene, that, that's not a... Um, you know, uh, uh, a praise or something exalted or anything like that. It's a put down. But l l think about this. What an encouragement that phrase would have been to this beggar that the person who has healed him has identified with his squalor, has identified with his despisement. I think it would have been an incredible encouragement uh, to him. Uh, see, this beggar probably not only had financial needs and physical needs, he had emotional needs as well. The hurt and the pain and the, the, the way people treated him. I'm sure there was a lot that went through his mind. And I think Peter was ministering to those emotional needs in two ways. First of all, through the title, Jesus of Nazareth. And secondly, by touching him. Verse 7, it says, And he took him by the right hand, and lifted him up. Now, you just didn't touch beggars uh, back in those days. And actually, even to this day, any, any country where there are beggars, the likelihood is that you're not going to feel real comfortable being touched by a beggar because they usually don't have places to live and to bathe. They're dirty. They've got lice and fleas and they smell bad. You, you just don't want to touch them. And uh, even though it made those beggars feel bad, they were so aggressive. I guess I don't feel totally bad <laughs> sidestepping them. But, man, after they grabbed hold of your arm, you could see the filth that was left on you. And yet Peter not only touches him, but he lifts him up. Now, when it says he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up, what does that imply? He's pulling him towards him, right? What an incredible gesture of fellowship. And I think that would have ministered incredibly to the emotions of, of this beggar. Now, let me just talk a little bit about the issue of felt needs and how they can prepare people for the gospel. You can't shove religion down people's throats. Or to use another metaphor, we should not be in the business of picking green, uh, green fruit. Instead, what we should be doing is we should be trying to discern the multitude of ways in which God has been preparing the hearts of people to be ready for the gospel. God is plowing the ground. He's plowing in their lives so that there can be the planting of seed. And we need to be discerning of how he's doing that. Sometimes God plows through financial disaster. Other times it's through families falling apart. It may be that God is plowing in the lives of many people in New Orleans and in Hattiesburg and some of the other cities that were hit so hard by this uh, hurricane. Others, he plows through divorce or through death. Out in Ethiopia, where I grew up, funerals were the time when the most people came to the Lord. It was just an unbelievable thing to see how through the pain and the suffering of death, God prepared them to be ready uh, for the gospel. And often the disasters that God brings into people's lives are designed to destroy idols that people are putting their trust in. Now, some people learn that very quickly and they abandon those idols and they turn to the Lord. But I've had some friends who had to go through years of misery as God plows and plows and plows in their lives before finally they turn to the Lord like the prodigal son 
Uh, other people learned much more quickly. One example is um, a lady up in British Columbia that my parents knew. And she had a son uh, who was either backslidden or maybe he never was regenerate in the first place. But she kept praying over and over again, worrying about him and that he would get into this trouble or that trouble. He was in drugs. And she would pray, Lord, please don't let him get into an accident. Lord, please keep him away from drugs. Lord, please protect him from this and protect him from that. And finally, the pastor took her aside and said, I understand your concern about your son. But your praying in these prayer meetings makes me think that all you're concerned about is his physical safety and not his spiritual safety. You know what? It might be a whole lot better if God did not protect him. If God was hard on him, if that meant that he would come back to the Lord and uh, come into a, a right relationship with him. And so I want you to do something. I want you to stop praying that God would protect your son. Instead, I want you in the prayer meetings to be praying, Lord, you be hard on my son. You do anything it takes to bring my son back to you. And she said, okay. She started praying that. Almost immediately, this guy got into a lumber accident and became a paraplegic. And he came back to the Lord, and this son said to his mother, you know, I am ever, ever so thankful that the Lord has made me a paraplegic because without it, I may have been dead apart from Christ. And I think many times... We do the same thing that that mother does. We're so concerned about the physical safety of our children and of our loved ones that we're doing exactly the wrong prayers. In fact, we're praying against God's will. You know what God's will is? First Thessalonians tells us, he says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. This is the will of God. You know what some of us, uh, all of us elders are praying for some of you guys in this congregation? We've stopped praying that the Lord will bless some of you. We've started praying that God will beat up on you, that he will take away your finances, he will take away your health, he'll take away anything that is keeping you from wholeness in Christ because we would much rather that you be uh, uh, made whole in your life spiritually than that you be made whole physically. Honestly, uh, it would be better that you go into eternity physically lame but spiritually whole. And I think we've been praying the wrong thing in the past, that the Lord prosper you. God is far more interested in your spiritual life than in your comfort. And so uh, when God has been planting, uh, has been uh, not planting, but has been plowing in your life, don't resist it. Say, Lord, thank you for bringing the difficulties into my life, the financial problems, the problems with my children, all of the other things, because I know that you're preparing me for something and help me to respond in a godly way and plant the seed that I might receive a harvest to your glory. See, God's in the business of destroying idols. And I think too many times it's the idols that we're most concerned about protecting and clinging to. Now, Peter, led by the Spirit, knows that it's this man's time to be healed both physically and spiritually. Verse 7 says, he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Uh, when we deal with sickness, I think it's important that we not only, not only admit that God's timing is better than our timing and submit to that timing, but that we also seek to work in the lives of these people and to the degree that we are able, lift them out of their situations. And thirdly, that um, uh, we trust the Lord that he is sufficient for any problem that we face. Does God continue to engage in supernatural healings? I say, absolutely, yes, he does. I've seen many supernatural healings that the Lord has done. In the Orthodox Presbyterian Church out in California, there was a guy that was a terminally 
uh, had terminal cancer. The chemotherapy did nothing. They were just waiting for him to die. He asked for the elders to come, anoint him with oil and to pray over him. And he was healed. And for many, many years, in fact, is he still alive? He may still be alive. He's uh, no remission. As exactly the same thing happened up in Canada with, uh, in the PCA church that was up there. And I've seen many other healings that the Lord has done. But I would caution you, when you look at the whole area of healing, to realize this. Any healings that the Lord brings to us down here below right now is only a tiny foretaste, is only a tiny foreshadowing, a down payment, as it were, of the real time of healing, which is the resurrection of our bodies, right? And so we'd have to say, yes, healing is in the atonement, just like the rejuvenation of this whole universe and the new heavens and the new earth is in the atonement. It's all in the atonement, but the Lord cannot be, we cannot demand, Lord, because it's in the atonement, you have to heal me now. God says he has his timings and the resurrection is the main time. Let me give you a proof text for that. Romans 8, 22 through 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. That is the redemption of our body. Now, he does not deny that our bodies Healing is in the atonement. He says our bodies have redemption. But where is the redemption primarily? It's in the resurrection. We couldn't have resurrected bodies if it was not uh, in the atonement. But that helps us to have a balance where we can rejoice any time God gives us a down payment now, and He does. He delights to present His people even now with um, gifts in, in, in their body. But because God has not answered our prayers, don't think that God has failed us. Uh, if Brian is not healed in this time, he will be healed in the resurrection, uh, which was sealed by his blood just as his soul was sealed with his redemption. Now, look at how immediate this man was able to walk and leap. Didn't have to learn to crawl and to walk. It was instantaneous. Verse 8. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Christ healed a man in John chapter 5 and warned him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Well, that man did not have a heart that was changed by grace. He immediately goes out and sin. In fact, he turns Jesus over to the authorities. Who knows why? It seems bizarre. He's been healed by Jesus. And then he goes to the Pharisees. And by the way, Jesus is right over there. You know, turns him over, maybe trying to gain some favor. But here is a man who is quite different. He shows a heart that has been changed because the immediate impulse of his heart is to praise God, to follow Peter and John, to fellowship with believers. And I want you to notice, too, that he doesn't praise Peter. He praises God. Now, listen to this. You may have ministered for years and years in somebody's life, sacrificially being used as an instrument of God's grace to minister to them. And finally, God does something in their lives and they're so overwhelmed and caught up with the Lord that they totally forget to thank you, <laughs> right? And you feel all bummed out about it. Don't rejoice in that. That's the way it should be. In fact, the apostle John, one of his disciples came up to him and said he was really troubled because everybody's following after Jesus instead of following after you. And John says, don't be troubled with that. Rejoice. He said, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And it's my prayer that every one of us would be able to have the same humility to say what John the Baptist said. I want Jesus to increase. I want all the glory and all the honor and all the praise to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can tell whether you really mean that when people forget to thank you. Right? You can tell. And so don't get bent out of shape when you have sacrificially ministered into your husband's life or into your wife's life or into your children's lives. And, uh, you know, they're really not thankful. In a sense, you can rejoice because if you receive praise down here below, Jesus said you already have your reward. But if you're not getting thanks, say, yes, they forgot to thank me. I'm laying up treasures in heaven, right? And so get that attitude that I want the Lord. I want him to be honored. I want him to be lifted up. That was Peter's attitude. It did not bother him in the least that all praise went to the Father. And that's exactly what happens in verse 9. It says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. They knew him before the transformation happened. They knew him after the transformation. And no doubt it's the miracle that they're mostly amazed about. But they could not have missed the fact that this person who previously was outside the temple is now inside the temple. And he is praying. He's praising God. He's fellowshipping with believers. His mind, his will, his emotions have all been affected. Probably even his face and eyes were showing that change. And you know what? When God's grace grips a person's heart, the world should be able to tell the difference. Now, they're not going to see an immediately perfect person, are they? They're going to see a person who has fallen into sin, but they should see a person who knows how to handle that gospel every day and put their sins at the feet of Jesus and put it under his blood. They should see a person who's having change. They should see a man, a woman, or a child that is filled with joy, who knows what it means to be forgiven. They should see a man who no longer has interest in his former life. You know, what a ridiculous, ridiculous thing it would be if this beggar said, well, thanks, Peter, for the healing. Uh, now I've got to get back to my spot where I sit because there may be other beggars that will edge in on my territory and uh, I can't let that lie idle, you know. I've got to be out there begging. I've got a job to do. I mean, even thinking such a thing should bring a rebuke. And yet that's exactly the way so many Christians act in their lives, isn't it? It's exactly the way that they act. They say that they are saved, but their whole life shows an ignorance of how the gospel applies in them day by day. They show little interest in prayer and praise and worship, fellowship, the teaching of the apostles, any of the disciplines that Jerry Bridges has uh, articulated so wonderfully in his book, The Disciplines of Grace. Instead, what they do is they find their comfort, their solace, their trust, in other things, and those other things are idols which God is in the business of destroying, right? Which means that they're constantly miserable. As Christians, they're miserable. Why? Because God's still plowing. He's not planting. He's plowing and plowing and plowing in their lives, and they just can't get, the path, get past that aspect of plowing because they're unwilling to have those idols destroyed. Uh, some people think that God's just being mean to them. He's not being mean. It's a kindness for him to get you past that and into a place where the seed can be planted and you can be raising a harvest to his glory. Don't be sitting in the beggar's spot doing what you're used to doing. Instead, you need to allow God's grace daily to be transforming you. And that is the covenant context of the gospel, which makes your gospel testimony credible. 
you know, it wouldn't make uh, a very good testimony if this beggar is sitting there begging with his legs all crossed up again and talking about how wonderful, you know, the healing of the Lord was. No, people wouldn't take him very seriously, would they? And people don't take us very seriously when they do not see us implementing the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing changes in our lives. And we say, what a wonderful gospel it is. And they're looking and saying, you're not any different than I am. It's the covenant context of the gospel that makes the gospel look so wonderful, that makes it shine. Now, this is what Titus 2, verse 10 is talking about when it says servants need to be godly. They need to be having this and that and being the best servants that they can be so that, verse 10, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, listen to me. Their good works that these servants are engaging in is not the gospel. That's the mistake that the liberals made. They thought that doing good things was the gospel. That is not the gospel. That's what developed into the the heresy of the social gospel. That is not the gospel. It is, in fact, a denial of the gospel. Instead, what he is talking about here is he is saying that when people can see that God's grace is a reality in our lives, His Word is being lived out in our lives, we beautify the gospel. We adorn the gospel. He's going to go on in verses 11 and following to be articulating to these people. That's the gospel. Verses 1 through 10 is the covenant context which makes that gospel so brilliant. Uh, Titus goes on to say, that women who fail to live by the power of the gospel every day and instead reject the hard work of being homemakers, discreet, chaste, lovers of their husband, obedient to their husbands, etc. He says they're blaspheming the word of their Savior. Why? They're blaspheming that word because they've taken the easy way out and their testimony will not be credible because nobody will believe a word that they say that the gospel has transformed and changed them. Paul says the same thing to the men who are living like the world rather than manifesting a transformed life. They're failing to adorn the gospel. And so in the rest of the book of Acts, one of the things you're going to see is that the apostles believe that the gospel needs to be presented in the context, the covenant context of the whole of the Christian life. Why? Because the gospel doesn't just apply when we first get converted. It needs to be lived out day by day. We're saved by grace alone, but grace continues uh, to transform us. And I really, really recommend that you read Jerry Bridges' uh, book, The Disciplines of Grace. So here's my question. Does your life show forth the covenant context of the gospel? Does it show that the gospel makes a difference in the way in which you handle conflicts with other people? Or do you handle those conflicts the same way that the world Is your life make a difference? Because Jesus, as Pastor uh, Durham said uh, a couple of weeks ago, he has raised us from the ash heap to sit with princes. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and you have no right to continue to act like a beggar. You have no right. In line with the healing of this story, it's in the mercy ministries where the gospel shines the brightest. And we need to pray that as the gospel goes forth, along with all of the mercy ministries and the hurricane... Katrina uh, victims, thank you, Glenn, um, that it would go forth with a real power because they see it being lived out. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If we don't live the gospel, we can't preach it. 
At least not credibly, we can't preach it. And so it's my prayer that our church would become more and more effective in the preaching of the gospel, which verses 11 and following uh, talk about, uh, as well as adorning it with the covenant context of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and what a challenge it is to our ways. It steps on my toes, Father. It steps on our church's toes. But Father, we want that because we want to grow and we do not want to uh, 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 resist uh, your plowing in our lives and the discomforts, whether they're outward discomforts or inward discomforts. Father, I pray that we would learn the lessons of these discomforts that are teaching us to abandon our trust in idols and our own ways of doing things and to find fruit being raised to your glory as we submit not only to your plowing but to your planting. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we respond to his word.